Hey guys, so we are back to our normal programming on the podcast, and for today we have Paula Stevens. Now, Paula was born at Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California in 1961, the oldest daughter of a large blended military family. In the early years, she and her siblings were shuffled from one military base to another and finally to a base located in Germany. While they were in Europe, at the mere age of 11, she lost her mother due to substance abuse and mental illness. Possibly. We'll get more into that later. But shortly after losing her mother, she returned to the United States in Ohio. And as Paula and her siblings began to settle into Knox County, her life would once again take a drastic turn. As she stepped off the school bus one afternoon with her sister, she discovered that there were three separate caseworkers waiting to shuffle her and her siblings to separate foster homes. Paula would begin her journey with the foster care system by moving in and out of seven different foster homes in the first year. And this was despite her attempts to find solace and reunite with her siblings. In 1986, Paula began writing her memoir about her turbulent beginnings, She speaks candidly about her experiences in the foster care system and how caregivers' actions and words can helpfully or harmfully affect the children that they care for. Her mission today and in writing her book was to give other less fortunate children hope and strength and not to allow their adversities to follow them into adulthood. Her memoir is her gift to these children. She's the founder of Edge of Unthinkable, LLC, Focusing on foster care issues, she is a consultant, a keynote speaker, a youth motivational speaker, and a trainer. She speaks at conferences, training, celebration events, and she's also a consultant in foster care training centers. She also hosts workshops and trainings at detention centers, rehab facilities, anywhere where her story can be of use. Paula is also a trainer with the Ohio Child Welfare Regional Training Center, so she trains foster parents, and it's just so remarkable how much better a foster care training can be when it's an actual child that has experienced a foster care system that is doing the trainings. I mean, she really knows, when you hear her story, she really knows the difference between foster parents that don't really make an impact in a child's life and ones that really do, as was her story. Her book is called On the Edge of Unthinkable. I had chills several times during this interview and I think you guys are going to learn so much from it. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids and beyond, We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Hey, Paula. Hello. So if we could just start with, um, so everybody knows I met Paula at an eGala conference and eGala is, it's a credentialing agency for equine therapy. Just like um, I talked about Path International before, um, eGala would be one of their competitors. So Paula is actually uh, eGala certified to be um, a therapeutic assistant. Is that what they call it? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you yes. have your own um, nonprofit that is an equine center. Um, it's a it's a ranch. It's a um... We call it Paradise in the Sky Youth Motivational Services, and originally we started out with horses, with kids from the foster care system. We have since ventured into every other um, group you could possibly imagine, from Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, you know, just family. We do, we have a cabin on the property. We do retreats from, you know, every kind of audience you could imagine, but my daily thing here at the ranch is to care for traumatized youth. Um, and lately some of their parents, I'm not sure how that happened, but some of the parents come along and we, we teach skills to reconnect with the parents, the kids and the parents. Um, and we do a lot of equine therapy with minis, with horses, with ponies. Um, right now we have a little girl out in the field riding one of my little mini donkeys and she's just been riding him for hours and then she just is 
you know, just loves to sit on that little donkey with nothing but just the donkey and the little girl, though no saddle, no bridle, nothing. She just rides them around. And um, yesterday, Thursdays are our big days where we have big groups, and it could be anywhere from a six-year-old, five, six-year-old to an 18-year-old. You know, the group's just full of different age groups and different um, different types of services for the kids. Like some of them are developmentally delayed. Some of them are just literally traumatized, traumatized from the system. Um, and a lot of them come from drug homes right now. I mean, every year it seems to change, you know, where the kids are coming from, the reasons they're coming here right now. Um, probably 80% of my kids come from um, homes that the parents were very instrumental in introducing to their children the drugs, their behaviors from the drugs, um, and all the different things that go along with it. So I have a lot of behavior issues when the, the kids come here. And teaching them social skills is difficult when they're already traumatized and have been, you know, come from homes that they've seen and things have happened to them because of this, that are things that you and I could not even comprehend. And when I hear the stories and I hear them climbing up over a horse and they're telling me different things, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, wow. And they're so adult about it. They're little tiny kids, but they're so adult about the drama and the trauma that they talk about that they've come from, you know, it's like everyday stuff to them. And um, so obviously my heart gets into it and it's just, it's, it's, it's heavy, you know, there's many, many days where when the kids leave, um, it's just heavy in it. It's, but it's rewarding at the same time because I don't really do as much as the horses do for the kids. The horses are just very therapeutic and very healing and very, um, they, they, they just bring them so far so fast compared to traditional um, therapies that um, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be able to watch a child that had no idea how to smile. I mean, their smile is holding their mouth open. They think they're smiling because they just don't know how to be happy. And to see them, you know, be able to take pictures of them learning how to smile for the first time or be in a group and feel confident and comfortable. So we never know from day to day when I get the phone calls from the behavior places, um, the behavior programs, the foster care system, the um, the different agencies that call me, I never know, no, never know what's coming, but I normally do not get phone calls for normal kids. That just never happens. It's usually a child that has been through their own little war before they come here. So this is quite pleasant, quite eye-opening, and quite um, a very unique experience for these kids. And um, it's humbling that that I'm trusted with these kids, you know, coming from my own background. So, um, yeah. And when you say, when you say that you um, have been serving some of the parents lately, does that look like, first of all, is that foster or adoptive parents? Is it biological parents? Is it a whole mix of both? And it's a whole when you mix. Say you're, okay. It's a whole mix. And are mm -hmm. you doing it as like whole group, like family therapy, or are you just kind of there for them as a support um, separate from their, their kids' services? I get them coming one-on-one -on -one groups to teach them to socialize. That's so awesome. Um, like yesterday in my mix of kids, we had um, a young man, and for some reason his mom joined us. Now, I could have said, no, you're supposed to drop him off and go, but his whole problem that I know about is that the two of them are like, they, they're toxic together and mm. she wanted to stay in the group and do a trail walk with the minis and I thought you know what this might be a great opportunity for her to see number one what he does but number two for me to see how do they really interact how do they really interact together and I'm on the phone with the caseworkers she's got one he's got one I know their history I mean I usually get that history before they start here so I kind of have an idea but it was humbling to watch you know, this giddy, giddy young man of 13, who's usually very talkative, very friendly, become very quiet and very mm. almost, almost spooky because, oh no, mom's in the group with us now. And, but at the same time, humbling, when I took a picture of the two of them, I, you know, I do a lot of, I'm a photographer as well. So I do a lot of photography with the kids for, um, for their life books, for one thing, but also just so that they can see themselves. Then I do videos with music 
and give them a DVD to put in their TV to watch how they've how far they're coming as they come back each time so that they can take it home and use it as their own therapy to watch themselves smiling and, and really getting along and loving on these horses and these cats and these dogs around here. And um, I get, I get moms call me back saying, I think, I hope you've got a copy of that because I may need another copy because they're wearing it out. So that when I hear these things from the moms, I'm, I feel really good about it. So for instance, yesterday, okay, I'm going to let mom come along with the group, even though it's sometimes very toxic, I'm going to keep an eye on it. And if I have to say, okay, mom, time to go, but I didn't have to, he stayed very quiet. She actually became more relaxed and friendly and happier than I've ever seen her. And I took a picture of the two of them. We do, we do, um, I have all 57 acres of trails and woods and, and vines. And I make photo stations with the vines and I had them both in a vine together with two minis and took like a portrait of the two of them together because I had never seen one of them together. And as I clipped it over to her phone last night, I said, here, here's a picture for you. I, I know I don't, I've never seen a picture of the two of you together. And she texted me back and said, we've never had a picture of us together. And he's 13. So things like that are just like um, very, just humbling, you know, to be a part of. And so when she when she said that, I wished I would have been on the phone with her because I would have said, and how did that make you feel <laughs> to get to that picture? Right. But, right. you know, so there's just, you know, how did that, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it meant a lot to you because you texted me back and said, in all these years we've been together, I've never, we've never had a picture of us together. And I thought, okay, if that's going to make the two of you bond a little better and feel a little more like your family, then I'm doing a good thing. So there's always a new thing. It's never a dull moment around here. We, we've always got um, things happening with these kids. <laughs> yeah. And, and in that session, just because you talked about it, in that session, did you feel like, obviously, you went with your gut on, you know what, I'm going to let mom join and we're going to see how this is. Like, mm-hmm. do you feel like the child felt like, great, you know, mom's taking over my sessions? Or do you feel like the child was by the end, happy to have his mom join? Or like, did you talk about how sessions would continue with or without her? Like, how did you navigate that? Well, I I do it day by day with her because she herself has her own mental health issues. And um, I think, I think in this situation, he fears her reactions because she's very reactional. So I watched from afar the whole day, of course, I'm behind the camera and, you know, slipping and sliding in the mud and, you know, he's laughing about that. And, but I'm watching and, I'm, you know, at any given time, if I would have sensed that he didn't want her here, I probably would have said, okay, you know, let's head back and okay, mom, you know, pick him up later, that kind of thing and try to, you know, kind of shoo her away. But I know he genuinely desires to be close to her. She's just difficult to be close to. So when I see these kinds of things, it's like, if I can do one thing, to make him feel safer with her, then I'm going to try it, even though but at the same time, not risking the other kids in the group or him not, you know, feeling safe. And it seemed yeah. to be, it seemed to go very, um, very pleasant. And as I, as I kept watching, I kept watching him getting closer to her and closer to her. And before long, they were almost like right beside each other, walking their horses, and he stayed close to her. He wants to be close to her, but she's she's the problem, I think. She's, <laughs> most she's, of the time, she's like most. As yeah. you describe her, I think of like her being prickly and like hard to you know, it's hard to get close to. But I I really love it, and it's a great demonstration for um, some of the people that listen to this podcast are stable moments locations. And Mm -hmm. we talk all the time about, you know, how parents aren't in the session, but we also talk about dropping the agenda. And this is the perfect, you know, scenario where your gut just kind of says, why can't mom be involved right now? And allowing that to happen. And, you know, those therapeutic moments usually are the ones that we didn't plan out. And they just kind of beautifully unfolded. And what's nice is that we wake up in the morning and we decide to create space for whatever therapeutic moments are going to happen. And, you know, we offer a horse and we offer staff, but the rest is kind of 
the flow, like whatever is going to happen, we're just there for. And so that's kind of what dropping the agenda is about for us. And so I feel like that's so beautiful. And then the other thing, which if, if you're a service provider where this makes sense, the taking video and taking pictures, like I talk all the time about taking pictures, but I don't necessarily talk about taking video, especially of a kid doing an activity that they would be proud of and that whole bit you said about smiling and seeing themselves happy and how how important it is to be able to see ourselves you know mirrored in a way that is being positive and allowing like the video thing is so important because not only are you making them a dvd it's not just like oh you know on facebook or on a phone if you give them a dvd like they can choose to Mm -hmm. watch it on their own in their own time it's not just their parents trying to impose something on them or show them something and it's also a way to like bring out their strengths while you're at home like it translates the barn to their home life and their parents can actually say like wow look how good you're doing this activity or I didn't realize how much of a horseman you were I didn't realize you you were so good with the horses and kind of build that sense of ownership at home as well I just I think right right Awesome. Well, the, these aren't, I don't do videos. I actually do pictures and put them in slideshow vid, uh, oh. DVDs with music. And usually the music, sometimes I'll talk to the kids, like, what's your favorite songs? What, what songs do you like to listen to? Or I'll get a group of kids that are just so traumatized. They're like, I don't care, whatever you want. And right. so if I put, if I choose the music, it's, it's going to be something like Lauren Daigle Rescue or, you know, um, it's, you know, meaningful words that they can actually feel when they're watching themselves smiling and climbing on a horse for the very first time or walking a little horse for the first time. I I want them to see for self, just self-awareness, you know, this is what you look like in the beginning of of the, the pictures in the beginning, this is what you look like. Now watch as it goes. I mean, usually they're no more than 19 minutes long because that's what my system will do. But they're, you know, every three seconds, that's a lot. That's like four to 500 pictures in there. And yeah. from the beginning to the middle to the end, by the time they're done, and I've, I've got five songs clipped in there, uh, something that may, that I that I heard them say, a song that'll go with something I heard them say. Or, oh, I love Shrek. Okay, I'm going to go get I'm a Believer or um, Rupert's Right with um, Hallelujah or something and put it in there so that not only are they seeing themselves, but they're feeling some of the emotion in these songs. And they, you know, the, the, the pictures pan in and out, and it actually looks like it's moving, like it is a, a real video. You know, it looks like a real video, but it's just a bunch of pictures collaged in there. It pans in and out, but the music, it puts the emotion with the pictures. And I can't get through making one without crying when I see the difference between the beginning of the day to the end of the day with someone who's maybe like yesterday we had three first timers, you know, in the beginning they were like, oh, we're not quite sure what's going to happen here. But by the end, you know, it, it's amazing to see the beginning and the ending pictures and they feel it and they'll say, you can, I'll, sometimes the kids will come back and I won't even give it to them. I'll put it on my big screen TV and I'll sit in the room and watch it with them and just note their body language. <laughs> and it's, Oh, sometimes it's like, okay, well, you got to walk away. You're going to cry <laughs> because mm. you, you can literally see their, their, um, you know, crossing their arms and sitting there real stern and like, Oh, oh this is going to be terrible. Oh, she's got pictures, you know? And and then all of a sudden, you know, they sit up straight and they put their chests out and they get this big grin on their face and something will happen and they'll start giggling or they'll, you know, they'll look over at me like, when did you take that picture? Mm. <laughs> so it's really, I think, as um, self-motivational for these kids to see them walk onto a, into a, a group and they're just so withdrawn and so, oh, I don't want to be here. Oh, why didn't they make me come here? Or why am I here? And then at the very end of that, at the very last third of the video, they see the transformation from the beginning to the end. Even they will turn around and say, wow, I really am pretty when I smile. Or, uh-huh. wow, look at me. I look strong in there. Or, wow, do I look, am I brave or what? You know, you hear him saying all these things and it's like, exactly, perfect. So it's, it's, it's been a mission and it 
I am not a computer person. I had one typing test or one typing class in my whole life on an IBM Selectric typewriter. And so mm -hmm. learning, I've had to pull seven systems together to make, to create these DVDs and learn how to do it all, you know, one little step at a time. And now I can do it in my sleep, of course. We've been doing this since 2012. And I've got hundreds and hundreds of little videos that I'll go back and watch, you know, and just, because sometimes after they've been here, I need to go back in and put one in and just feel good because it, it takes its toll on me too, you know, to know the backgrounds. And, you know, when a child comes to me and a sibling, two siblings come to me and say, you know what, I used to tie the band on dad's arm. And the other sibling says, yeah, and I used to put the needle in so that he could put his drugs in his veins. And that was really cool. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, oh, my yeah. gosh, you know, and so I get, you know, so much of that or, you know, um, mommy said that that her friend could have me for an hour because she got got her drugs. Mm. I mean, it's it's hair raising stuff with these kids of these addicts go through. And I've gained enough trust in my county that they know that the most traumatized kids will get special attention out here instead of throwing them into groups of 40 and 50 and 60 kids. They're going to get one on one and they're going to and they're I'm going to really work hard and they also know that I have I you know I have their backs I know their I know the life of foster care I know what it feels like to be with you know seven sets of strangers in one year I know all of those feelings so they I'm guessing that's why they trust me with these kids so much yeah and and I think I think having that background is totally what adds credibility so I want to talk about that a little bit you know I had originally wanted to talk to you because you were in foster care and you actually have written a book um, mm -hmm. on the edge of unthinkable you speak and you train you train children you train uh kids in schools you train uh foster parents yeah. right mm -hmm. i've traveled from coast to coast as a, a foster parent trainer um bringing my own story into the trainings so um, the state of the state of Ohio actually came to me and said, you know, your story is so amazing. Can you put one? And they tried, you know, it was like this, this thing, you know, we're going to ask her, she'll use her story and put a, a foster care training together. And it took us about six months to get the training completed and approved by the state. But this training, I hit the ground running the first day and I hadn't stopped. I mean, this, the first one fostering the difference, which is out of seven foster placements, which one? Which one, which foster family made the difference? Who made you what you are today? And it has been screen written, even, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, who would have ever thought that people wanted to hear this stuff? You know, who ever, you know, wow. And, and it was amazing to me. And then I went on to do another training um, on sibling separation and then another training on helping foster parents teach uh, social skills and etiquette, manners and etiquette to the foster kids, because most of them slip through the cracks and people, you know, are so busy when they're getting these kids, they just assume that the foster parents before them or the parents before them taught them all the correct social skills and manners and etiquette that they need to be successful adults when they age out at 18. And to my surprise, when they asked me to do that one, I was like, oh, I'm going to get water bottles thrown at me. They're going to throw their coffee at me. Who wants to be told how to teach? how to teach proper, you know, etiquette and social skills. And to my, to my amazement, as well as theirs, it has been such a fun workshop to teach these foster parents and, you know, to give them the new ideas that I researched to put into this workshop has just been um, amazing to me, you know, to see and to feel their acceptance of this class. And mm. even, you know, just like and, and it started as a speaker in the in the detention centers with the with the kids. Most of them were gang kids. They came to me and said, you know, in your presentation, can you slip in some social skills like how to say please and thank you? Because these kids don't know those things. And 80 percent of them are leaving these centers going straight into foster care. Can you at least put something together? that in your presentation that, you know, and of course me, you know, the, you know, the outspoken me, you know, my foster mom, Bonnie, that you probably, if you read, if you read the story, you'll meet Bonnie. She was an amazing person. And she always said, you know, um, blossom where you're planted, you know, go, you know, change, change the world. And amazing. Uh, um, fostering the difference is all about my Bonnie and my Larry, you know, 
the things that they taught me, the things that they expected me to know that nobody else could have given a care for. You know, they didn't care if I knew that stuff, you know, the previous six foster homes. But, you know, to go into these centers and to be able to say, listen, um, you're going to go into foster care when you leave here. And you're going to make it, you're going to go through a lot less homes if you know one thing, how to say please and thank you and how to be polite and how to be kind. And, you know, to my amazement, I can't tell you how many of these kids will walk up to me and, and they'll say, lady, you blindsided me. We didn't expect you to have any good information to tell us, you know, so between the foster care system and, the, you know, I'm, I'm involved in so many groups that bring the, 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 of the kids that end up in foster care. Um, obviously, my first love is to share my body and layer it with the foster parent. Well, so if you can, if you can just catch people up briefly on how you entered care and then tell people about what made Bonnie and Larry different. They were your seventh foster, um, mm -hmm. foster care home. And of course we're going to promote your book and anyone that um, wants to read it should, and we'll make sure that we have the links out there. But if you can just say kind of your background of why you came into care and then, and I know people are dying to know what made Bonnie and Larry different. Um, well, we had, my mother pre had died pre a year and a half prior while we were military kids stationed in West Germany. And we came stateside and into this little town of Mount Vernon that I live right now and still live. And I was um, 11 when that happened. And by the time I was about, about 12 and a half going on 13, um, my, my dad remarried right away to um, a military secretary, intelligence secretary. And, um, she told us the day she moved in, before this is done, you three older girls, there were six of us, you three older girls are going to be either in a boarding school, you're going to be in juvenile detention, or you're going to be in foster care, which we had no idea what that meant. We thought, wow, who are you? What are you? You know, I remember looking at her like, who are you? And why would mm. you do something like that? What are those places? And within a year and a half after her, she entered, or a year, a little over a year after she entered our home, I won't even go into what, what she brought with her, um, she gave our dad, our very high-powered military dad, a choice, three girls or me, what's it going to be? Um, he chose us three girls. And the reason the story is called On the Edge of Unthinkable was the lie, the unthinkable lie that he went to children's services all with his whistles, bells, and his, you know, all decked out in his big fancy military outfit and told children's services. And I don't write that in the book, but I'm going to tell you now, because when I'm out speaking, this is just something that I, I, I wonder sometimes, will people ever, you know, little kids that hear me speak, figure this out, but grownups, I don't know if it's because kids just don't have filters yet and they and they just say what they're thinking or if it's the parents who are saying oh I'm not gonna say that that would hurt her so bad I don't know what it is but parent or adults just don't come up with this but what he did was he went to children's services the unthinkable lie was I've got three girls they're 10 11 and 12 together the three of these girls can never be together the three of them are so bad they can never be um, watched by one set of parents that they need to be separated because the three of them single-handedly murdered my wife, their mother. And so we were thrown into the foster care system, but we were given less than 24 hours notice that we were going to foster care, which we still didn't know what it was. Um, the next day after school, we come home to meet three caseworkers who loaded us in three Hold cars on. and took us so away. Wait. Did they, um, so your mother died of substance abuse and mental illness, is that correct? No, we don't really know why she died. She was fine the night before. She was, uh, when I went to bed, she was wide awake, partying with the captain and his wife, playing cards, laughing and talking, and the best I'd seen her in years since he'd come home from Vietnam. He was a war vet from Vietnam. He was also an interrogator of the Vietnam War. So I can mm -hmm. tell, you can only imagine him being an interrogator back when they sent all those Vietnam guys home, they didn't give him any help. They just said, go home, suck it up, be a man, never speak of it again. Well, he came home and his new interrogation team was his six little kids. And the things that followed after that were just, you know, in front of my mother who could, was helpless, could not, she did not have mental health issues until he came home. And then she mm. could not handle the torture she watched us go through when he came home with PTSD and all the things that came with it. And so um, she started getting very depressed, very sad, had to go on a bunch of medication. 
um, from depression, from watching the, the, the abuse that we were going under, you know, with him. Um, and God bless him. He fought for our country. God bless him. That's all I can say. But mm-hmm. our country let him down. And <laughs> we, this, this story is not um, in the military world. This is a typical, can be a very typical story. In the civilian world, this is a very, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. No way. You know, and I've had many people say, man, you need to have a very vivid imagination or, oh, my gosh, you know, but he he worked us over really bad. And I don't write about that. I don't speak about the things he did because I don't think anybody needs to know it. My goal wasn't to write a book to trash this military man that that didn't get taken care of out of the war. It was to give it to the next kids down past my my era that didn't have a positive ending of foster care. My book was a gift. I wanted it to be a gift because I continuously looked for a book, a story that would that I could read where I saw somebody go into this life and they came out on the other side. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I decided to write it, I, you know, I said, I want this to be a gift to the kids who are going into foster care after me. And so I didn't write all that gory stuff, but I wanted, you know, my goal was to write about these amazing foster parents who I got landed in their laps, you know, and right. Well, no, no. And I, I totally get it because there's a difference. You, you went through six different homes and on the seventh, what they mm-hmm. gave you shaped your life. It and thank, thank God you're able to um, train foster parents because it does matter. It matters how you approach these kids. And, and so I'm so glad that you have the you know, courage and that your, your path led you to where you are. Now, mm-hmm. when Department of Children and Families, did they just understand it as a dad that couldn't handle his kids? Oh, no, 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 no. They, no, they got these three girls laying in their laps, intake, you know, the intake workers were like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Did they really kill her? So every week, once a week, at, every Thursday at three o'clock, I would get for the first year, tell me again what happened the night your mother died. And and nobody would tell me why, like for a whole year, tell me again what happened the night your mother died. And what I didn't know was my, um, my sisters were getting interrogated the same, same way. Holy smokes. That's a, like, that's a lot for, I mean, that process, first of all, your mother dying, traumatizing, dealing with your father's PTSD, traumatizing, but being asked to relive the night your mother died when did you realize that they thought that you might have had something to do with it well you know what as traumatized as we were I don't think I ever realized as a teenager that that's what they were headed down that was the road they were heading down I never it didn't I did not know for sure that the whole town knew when we flew into Mount, when we flew into Port Columbus after in that, that March of 1972, I did not know that the whole town was told that us three girls murdered our mother. Every, the whole town knew but us. Their war hero was coming home and, their, and his daughters killed his wife. We did not know that until I was just about ready to launch this wow. book. I kind of had a thought in my mind it was like I, I even joined a fire department when I was 27 years old because one of the guys the intake workers was on the fire department much older than I was but I thought if I join that fire department I pull fire hose with them and I go out and I I help these people that are in these wrecks and all that eventually this guy's going to trust me enough because I would say come on guys what did he tell you why are we in foster care what did he tell you and I did this for many many I was almost you know I was ready to I released this book at 48 Okay. And, and, and all they would say to caseworkers and the intake workers is Paula, just live your life. Don't worry about what, what was said. You just live your life. They could not bring themselves to tell us girls the truth of why we were placed in foster care. They never wanted us to know. The only reason we know is we paid an attorney to, to unseal our records and we got to see the handwritten letter that he wrote about it. And then I had somebody that was very close to him finally come out and say, what, what exactly are you looking for? And I said, I want to know what happened to my mom. I want to know why he thought he just could throw us away. And she goes, oh, come on. You don't know that what the whole town knows that you girls, you know, killed your mom before we, you came back from Germany. And I remember I was like 12 miles away from home when this lady told me this. And I was 40, about 48 years old. And 
I, well, I just remember getting in my car. I remember t- that 12 miles seemed like 12 years to get home that day because it was like, the, you know, we always wondered about it. We always thought it, but no one ever confirmed it. And now I know for a fact that we were labeled mama killers all those years. And why to this day, when I walk down the streets of this little town, do I hear people say, aren't you one of those little Kyle girls that ended up in foster care? And I know when they ask me still to this day, yeah, you still think I killed my mom, I know. But after a year of all three of us being interrogated, they realized that we all, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. We weren't allowed to call each other, see each other. We were in the same school, the hall, the school, the the teachers, the, the janitors, everybody was told, do not let those three Kyle girls get together because we can't let them talk right now. Well, at the end of a year, all three reports from all three of us were identically the same. We all told the exact same story of that night and they took him back to court. He got his hand slapped. He got um, a neglect charge. She got nothing for everything she did. And, um, he was sent on his merry little way, and, and it was like this, this thing never happened. And, and then all of a sudden, they lifted, oh, the girls can get together now. They can, they can you know, visit and do overnights now. And eventually, one sister, um, my Bonnie and Larry, broke that big seal that, you know, that big, oh, the girls can't be together. And I was surprised one day when I came home from school that the youngest of the three of us was going to be living with me. So um, amazing people just people just didn't want us to really know the truth. And, you know, I just turned 59 years old and I'm still learning things about all that, all that stuff that happened, you know, and I'm still getting through the trauma and the drama of all of it. Yeah. So, so you went through six foster homes um, before you got to your Bonnie and Larry Mm -hmm. who were very impactful in your life. So what made Bonnie and Larry different than the other homes where you didn't feel taken care of? What made them different was normally when you enter a foster home, foster parents, and I'm just, I hope there's not a lot listening that's going to get like anxious about what I'm going to say, but most of them say, kids, show her her room and tell her the rules of the house. Mm-hmm. And I got into six of those previous. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. When you enter a new home, it's like entering a new school. You are, you're the new kid. Are they going to tell you the right rules? No. Are they going to, are they going to tell you everything you need to know? They're going to tell you just enough and maybe just a little more to get you in trouble. And so I, I just, I found myself in trouble all the time. Like, well, they told me I could do that. Well, that's not the rules. That's not the way things go. And then they, and then the thing that the kids would say, well, this is where you're sleeping, not Bonnie and Larry. They, you know, Larry, we, the difference between you know that I asked for is like please don't drop me off at dinner time please 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 now I'm heading on 13 now don't drop me off at dinner time do let's can we do something different this is wrong what you're doing to kids you can't be dropping them off at a meal time who wants to sit down with strangers and then eat a meal your stomach's in your throat this is crazy and so for some reason they listened to me and they said we're going to do it different we're going to go you know and if people don't think kids remember every little detail it was um, you know, we've got these two parents, this Bonnie and Larry, that um, we're going we're going to introduce you to, but we're going to do something different. We're going to have dinner with them, and the caseworker's going to stay with you. You know, my favorite Buffy caseworker, case Buffy Fisher, was going to stay with me, and we're going to have dinner, and at any point during the conversation, if you feel comfortable, like you want to live there, you say something, and if they, they like you enough, you're, they're going to say, hey, we'd really like for you to come and live with us. And then I get a choice for a change, wow. which was very odd. And so we went to dinner. Buffy was there. And <laughs> about, this is, I'm going to try to get through this without crying because Larry was 94 and just died last mm. February. So it's still kind of awesome. touchy, you know, it's like my, my hero <laughs> left me. Um, but he was sitting at the table and he, within 20 minutes, he goes, I know what I'm going to nickname you. And I looked at him like, you don't know me. But Buffy's edging me like, don't say anything, Paula, just be quiet. And and he says, um, I'm going to name you Bubbles. Hmm. And I went, oh, and I looked at Buffy like, does that mean I'm staying? And she goes, Paula, just be quiet. <laughs> so it went on. And about 20 minutes later, Larry just opened up and he looked straight in my eyes, which was so uncommon to have the foster parents really look at me, especially the foster dads, because I was a girl. They didn't want to make eye contact. And he looked me right in the eyes and he goes, you know what? 
He goes, Bonnie and I would sure feel very good if you would be, come and be a part of our family. And then Buffy elbowed me and she goes, now you can talk. <laughs> and I went, really? You know, like, um, well, you know, three foster homes ago, they let me have a little black kitten. Can I go back and get my kitten and bring it here? And he says, you sure can. And I remember looking at Buffy saying, can we come back tonight? And, and she says, no, it's Wednesday. We're going to come back Saturday. So Saturday morning, upon entering this brand new life, um, I remember when I walked in the door, so, which was so odd because, you know, remembering the other foster homes, Larry was standing in the kitchen with his arm around Bonnie's shoulder. They had these great big smiles. And when I walked in, the first thing out of his mouth was, I, we are so humbled. We are so happy that you are here and you're going to be part of our family. And before he could say anything else, he goes, you know, he goes, I got some man stuff to go finish with my work. He goes, but I'll see you back here at dinner. And he goes, we'll talk later. So he took off and went to work. And Bonnie says, come on, I want to take you upstairs and show you your room. And I went, what? <laughs> wow, that's odd. Okay. So we went upstairs and she opened this door and the room was sterile white. There wasn't a sheet on the bed. The closet chain light was pulled on. The drawers were all open. There was nothing in the room, no curtains. The white walls were white. white. There was nothing anywhere. And I turned around and looked at her and I said, is this a joke? Is this my room? There's not even a pillow. And she says, that's exactly right. She says, later this afternoon, she says, we're going to go shopping and you're going to buy the pillow that you want, the bedspread, the sheets, whatever kind you want, whether you want fuzzy sheets or, or silk sheets, you're going to pick out the color paint that you're going to paint your room and your curtains. And she says, this is going to be your world. You're going to build it. Oh, wow. And, you know, I mean, it was just amazing. And so as I'm training foster parents, I'm like, no, you may not have the money to go out and do what they did with me, but you could have a closet set up and you can have several types of sheets, several colors, several types of brand new pillows, not used in your closet, flat pillows, fluffy pillows. You can have all kinds of stuff ready for them because what I tell them is she changed, she took that ever pivoting world that I was in and she stopped it uh, all that stuff going on in my head and I went wow so I was instantly not afraid of any anymore I was instantly like I get some control here I'm not out of control anymore I get to control this and what a beautiful quote that just was the that quote she took my ever pivoting world and she stopped it I mean she did it was amazing. I mean, they were just amazing people. You know, um, what made them different, you know, the first thing, and I, this is something in every single Fostering the Difference training, what made Bonnie and Larry who they were? The first thing she did, she says, well, she says, before we go shopping, she says, we've got to have a talk. Well, in my world, when we had to have a talk, it ended ugly. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, you know, not a talk. I'm already in trouble. Right. So she takes me down to her little study and she pulls a chair up. We're knee to knee and her little black bony eyes were looking straight at me. She says, before we go shopping today, she says, I want to talk to you about forgiveness. And I went, oh, no, <laughs> I don't like this already. You're going to sure. tell me I have to forgive that man and that woman for what they did. And by the time, you know, she had gone to the dictionary and she had looked the word up and she had in her bonnie scribbly little handwriting had written out the definition of the word and and she tried and she was so intelligent she should have been a school teacher because she started she was i want to read this to you and she started reading it and i just kept shaking my head like it i was in so much pt ptsd of my own that everything she said was not computing in my head and she knew by my look on my face that I wasn't getting it. So she handed the little piece of paper to me. She goes, now read it, read it to me then. Just read it out loud to me. And for some reason, I was actually, I was able to capture the meaning of what she was trying to do. And I looked at her and I go, you mean I, I wouldn't be forgiving him for him? I would be forgiving him for me? Mm. And the way she explained how incredibly important it was for me not to come into this whole living situation in her home with so much anger and resentment and I mean I was angry and she says you can't it will eat you up and just the way she explained it and as I explain it to even today to not only to the foster parents but I talk about this specific conversation to my to my detention center kids or my prison kids and they'll look at me and say I just 
breaks me up because when I hear it, it's like, oh, but they look at me and they go, how come you're the first person to ever tell us about this? How come nobody else ever told us about this? Mm. And it just, it just, oh, anyway. So that was the first thing. And I know that when I walked out, of, you know, and then after she talked, we talked about it. She says, can I do one more thing before we go shopping? And I said, and this is like day one hitting the ground running, man. Mm. I mean, I walked in the door, went upstairs and went to that little chair. And this all happened so fast that I remember when she says, can I do one more thing before we go? And I said, what is that? And she says, I want to pray for you. And I said, well, I don't know what that means, but if you want to pray for me and we can go shopping, let's do it. And, and <laughs> it was before I even knew it, she wraps her arms around me. And not only did she pray, but she prayed, prayed out loud. And not only did she pray for me, but she prayed for my sisters, mm. all my siblings that weren't with me. And I know that when I walked out of that corner, life was going to get better. And it did. I mean, I just knew, I knew when I walked out of that room that life was never going to look the same again. And having that, that little bit of, you can do this behind me was incredible. I mean, um, you know, some other things, Bonnie was always, um, after that, eventually there was three more girls that came and, you know, every Saturday she was, so intentional to take 15 minutes and go over a lesson of some kind, whether it was how the ladies are supposed to sit in the public and how women or young ladies are supposed to dress and how you're supposed to conduct yourself in mixed company and, you know, how important it was to keep your surroundings and everything, you know, neat and tidy and just always a new girl lesson, you know, that mm -hmm. was just amazing. And at first I hated it. And then I, it, by Tuesday, I was like, what are we going to talk about Saturday? Bonnie, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I learned to really appreciate and love her, her girl lessons, which I have sent, you know, I, I took on with my own kids and my grandkids now. So, um, and now, you know, I find myself doing it with the kids that come here on a regular basis. Um, some other things that Larry did, Larry was so intentional to be so involved. He taught me the value of how to save money. I mean, that was a big, huge thing. And, you know, every time you babysit and you make, you can make $20, you're, you keep half and you give me half. And he went and opened a savings account for me. And back then you stamped, they stamped how much was in your account on the book. So mm -hmm. every night at dinner, he would open that little book and say, look how much money you've saved. By wow. the time I left, I emancipated out at 18. I had $7,500 in that account Wow! from babysitting, mucking stalls, helping garden gardening and um, helping people clean their houses. And just anything I could do, I wanted to do because he was, you know, it was fun to work because every night he built my self-esteem by showing me, look how much money you're saving. And to this day, I remember these lessons. Now, when I, by the time I saved about $300, I had been riding his old broke down horse on the farm. And he said, you know, you've been riding this old horse out here who doesn't go very fast at all. And, he, and you know, he's really old. So how would you like to have your own horse? And I, he goes, you got enough money in the bank. He goes, I'll make a deal with you. I'll pay for half and you pay for half. Uh -huh. and so he knew that he knew the stable up, you know, an hour away that had a riding stable. And he knew the man and the man goes, you bring her in here and she can pick out any horse she wants. And I picked out my rosebud, which was actually a boy. And I called him buddy. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day they, I picked him out and I went to give Larry his part of the money. He goes, you'll put that money back in your account. You're not, I'm not taking your money. I was just kidding you on that. Aww. And I remember they delivered the horse the next day. And, you know, when he said you could have your own horse, you know, a kid that's not in the foster care system is like, would take that for granted. But I didn't. And I didn't think about it like a normal kid. And I remember watching them unload the horse. The first horse hit the ground, the second one, the third one. And when the fourth one hit the ground, all I could say was, I'm not going anywhere now because they're not going to take, no one's just going to take me and my horse, you know. Mm. There was just so many things. I mean, he listened to me about school. He was always involved with my schoolwork. I was bullied a lot because I was a foster kid. And what I didn't know about this amazing man was when he would ask me questions about the people, the kids that bullied me for two or three years by now, um, I, the one bully that was bullying me the most came up and said I had to take those glasses off your face and shove them down your throat well I had just had enough by then and I just exploded well I got pulled down to the office for the first time in my whole life never had to go in the office and the, he said he was gonna you know because I supposedly started this fight I was going to be expelled and I said wait a minute I need to call my dad I said I need to call him and what I didn't know was every night I told him everything that was going on at school he was 
waiting until I left the table, grabbing his yellow tablet, time dating, and, and writing down the whole conversation. He had two yellow legal tablets full of everything I had said for three years. Oh and he ran God. home, got that tablet, met back at the, at the high school, walked in with them in his hand, and he handed them to the principal and said, if you expel her, that girl right there better be expelled because here's what she's been doing to her for three solid years. And he flipped through this thing in total amazement and looked at me and he goes, Paula, go back to class and expelled the girl for four weeks. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's so amazing because the difference was like, they showed you, you mattered. Like they showed yeah. up, they wanted to give you little mm -hmm. lessons because you matter and you're, they were girl lessons then. So, you know, you're a girl in this culture and you matter. So this is how you're going to want to behave or, or, or act. And, and just like the financial stuff, it's like life skills that they're pouring into you to show you that like, not only do you have value, but you can make good choices and you can, you know, gain money. You can um, be self-sufficient that you are good at things and mm -hmm. it just seems so simple well, here's one more thing but they just did it so consistently i'm sorry i just want to i want to interject one more thing here that's incredibly important for bonnie on bonnie's side for foster parents that especially have girls <laughs> but boys too but one of the other things she did within the first week i was there was before these little personality profiles came out that you could do with kids and teenagers and adults she had already found a teenage one for me and this is the amazing part of her. She says, I'm, I'm going to let you take a little test. It's like 10 questions. Which word best describes you? And we got done. She scored it. And she looked at me. She goes, the reason I'm doing this, she says, is because if I don't do this, she says, you're going to think I'm mad at you all the time. She says, I'm, a, I'm the, um, the, sol the solitude person, the person who wants to always be reading and studying. I'm not the, the gabby, talky person. She says, you, on the other hand, are the, you're the salesperson. You're the social butterfly. You're the person who's going to go out and just be involved in everything. She says, I am not. And she says, Larry, he's that, he's that steady working kind of guy. So she helped me understand all the family dynamics and personalities as well as my own. And she said, when you grow up, you're going to be a salesperson. She says, you're going to be the best salesperson anybody's ever had. Wow. And for 12 years, I worked, worked for Jay. This is crazy because I, did, I didn't believe her. I was like, she's crazy. What did she have for lunch? Oh my gosh, what is this? You know, I'm heading on 13 going, sales, are you kidding me? I have to talk to people. And you know, here for, for 10 years, I worked for JP Morgan in the sales, the mortgage sales department and made six digit figure income because I was such a natural salesperson. She knew exactly what she was talking about when I was 13 years old. Well, and it's like, it's she such, helped me understand. Well, me. And it's like kids, especially kids, you know, with your background or who have trauma are going to take everything personally. Everything's going to be a negative hit against, it must be me. It must be me that she doesn't want to talk to right. me. It must be me. And she helped you figure out, like, it isn't mm -hmm. you. You, in all of your glory and your personality, are incredible and are going to do incredible things. Me, when I, I do things this way, and when I'm doing them in conjunction with you, it has has nothing to do with my feelings about you. It's just who I am and we are all uniquely beautiful and have our own personality. And gosh, she was like, mm -hmm. she was years. She was amazing. Mm -hmm. And Larry too, with the horse, I mean, equine therapy wasn't even thought of in 1974. They didn't even, nobody even uttered a word about equine therapy back then, you know? And here I got to have my best friend in the whole world with me every single day to pour out all my sorrows and, and heal you know, through those years. And they knew that I needed that horse. They knew. And so, you know, their, their love and commitment, unfailing commitment was just off the chart. It, I don't even know how to describe it. And as I stand before these foster parents, you know, I can't tell you how many of them walk up to me afterwards and go, Paula, we are changing so many things we've been doing so wrong for so long after hearing this today. You do not know. And men who just get drugged into these trainings, you know, and they'll, I don't know how many of them have walked up to me saying, if I would have known for one second that I was going to hear this today, I wouldn't have kicked and screamed for two weeks telling my wife I wasn't coming mm -hmm. here. I would have gladly come and listened to this. She's, one guy with these big chains hanging off his belt and everything, I thought he was mad at me. He said, 
I've learned more today in three hours than I've learned in the all 10 years I've been going to these trainings. I love it. You made me, you made me understand what you all go through and what you're thinking inside your head. And these kids are so young now, they can't tell us, but you've helped us understand why some of the things happen that they happen, you know, but, you know, Bonnie and Larry were so different. They headed off this stuff before it happened, just like helping me understand the, the personalities, helping me understand who I was or what, and the, my kind of personality, uh, how to temper down my gabbiness, you know, you're going to be talk, you're going to talk so much that we're going to have to tone it down, which it did happen. <laughs> Still does. My husband will tell you. Um, and my daughter, <laughs> and, and how I grew up with, you know, being an extrovert and had two introverted kids, had Bonnie not have given me that personality profile that day, I had no idea how I would have ever raised two very successful kids. No, you know, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you talk? Right. And, and they they were always saying, Mom, why don't you be quiet, right. you know? And so, but I understood it. Right. And that would have hurt my feelings had I not have known what I knew. Right. So, you know, oh, it's so amazing people just, well, uh, and it's so I, incredible. And then Larry writes a chapter in the book. It's mm -hmm. so incredible that you get to give that to foster parents because it does seem simple enough. It seems like something that's applicable and, and that anyone can even do a 10th of what Bonnie and Larry did and, and be better foster parents for it. Right. Well, so oh, I, I want, amazing. I want to, um, ask you this because I ask everybody that comes on the show and you're very mm -hmm. or on the podcast and you're very um, immersed in the, you know, the foster care world. How do you think we end the foster care crisis that seems to only be getting worse with more and more kids coming into care? How do you think we, we end it? Well, I know I have my take on that. First of all, if I could say anything to any foster parent that could possibly be listening to this today, if we could, somehow quit labeling these kids and calling them foster kids and we can find another way to refer to kids and never ever call them foster kids again because it's such a label it's such a bad label and to this day I get asked aren't you that little foster girl Paula Kyle if I could do anything to change how kids re are receptive to foster care and and help the success rate I would say you know we've got labels upon labels upon labels now we have foster kids that have they're a foster kid, and now they're a foster kid of an addict, and now they're a foster kid, you know, I mean, now they're a, uh, whatever, every day, every year the, the label changes for disrupted kids that get into foster care, get adopted, and they get thrown back into the system. If we can do anything to change this and end it, we should never, ever call a child a foster child. Mm. <laughs> As I will go to my grave saying that to people, you know, we've got to quit labeling these kids, because we're labeling them, and we're, to this day, just the the hot of being called a foster kid is demoralizing to me. So I, I, I love, stop. I absolutely love that in theory. But so if you take like, um, just because I would love to like go with you on this movement, but if you have to define your target population in some way, like we, like the stable moments model specifically serves foster and adopted kids. And I, and I, or it's children that have early developmental trauma. And I, I make it specific to that because I feel like, there are things that come with early developmental trauma that, you know, a kid that just has a divorced mm -hmm. parent or something isn't going to need or, or, or isn't going to be receptive to. So how do you mm -hmm. define mm -hmm. your target population without carrying, adding more burden and, and more stigma to this label? Mm. Cause I want to do it. I don't know. You know, I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say we're, it's, they're not foster kids anymore. So like, is it any better to say children in foster care? Yeah. I mean, it's people first language. And maybe that's just something that like, well, that educators or people in the, you know, as we talk about them in public with other kids and stuff, we don't say foster kids. Um, mm -hmm. But I just, I always have to wonder how I'm adding to the, to the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hear what you're saying. I think to, to start something like this, and I tell my foster parents this all the time, I believe that the way they introduce their kids once they get them, the way they introduce them, Larry would never let the word foster come into his house. And people would walk up to him all the time and say, which one of these are your kids and which ones of these are your foster kids? And he goes, these are, these are all my children. Mm. These are all my children. None of, you know, they're all my children. 
but I had a, a foster dad stand up one night in a class when we, one of the parts of my training, one of the, the breakout sessions is how do we introduce these kids? You, you get a new, a new child in your home and you go out into your community. And yeah, they all know your foster parents, but how do you introduce these kids? How do you introduce them to all your new people, all your, your church or, you know, your, whoever your, your community. And, um, I, I, you know, we, we worked on it. We did, I've done a lot of sessions and, you know, Larry would never do that. So I always knew in the back of my mind, I know how Larry would do it, but how would you all do it? And finally I was a, a, Oh, there must've been 60 people in the class one night and everybody was saying, Oh, I just say they're my foster, foster kid number five, you know? And, Oh, I just say, yeah, this is my new foster kid. And, and they went on and on and on. And finally this one man stood up and I had, this was like almost 10 years ago. He stood up and he says, look, he goes, if you don't stop this, these kids are going to end up in places we don't want to see them in. And I go, okay, so how do you introduce your kids? And he says, this is what I do. Because when I see the nosy man that lives three houses down, come at me at the grocery store and he sees a new one, you know, I know he's going to come down the row and say, Hey, oh, what's this one's name? What's their story? And this is how you do it. You go, this is little Johnny. He's 10 years old. And the, his favorite thing in the whole wide world is race cars. Mm. He loves his race cars. Mm. And, and the parents are just like scratching their heads going, wow. It's easy, huh? But it's, and, I, but I, I, but it, and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. it, well, and then, and, and then I tell them, it's like, and it's, it's not because saying this is my new foster kid. It's what has just happened to that child when he did that? What just went through that kid's head? He has some ownership. Oh gosh, he has he some can't... value. He has a name. Yeah. Not a number. Right. <laughs> he cares. He knows, he knows, look, he already knows I like race cars. He listens to me. He really cares. You know, Larry would say, this is Bubbles. You know, she's 13 years old and, and she loves her horses. I love you know? that. And I never really caught, I never really caught on. And so this man stood up and I'm telling you, all those people in that room, when he got done talking, they were sobbing and they were crying. They were clapping. And you know, it was, it was an amazing thing. And I asked him, I said, please let me take this with me as part of my new workshop because I'm going to change everything I do. And he says, ma'am, you can use it anywhere you want. He goes, people have got to stop calling these kids foster kids. And I said, I know, <laughs> you know, they all usually know right away that I'm a, that I'm a former foster kid. And I don't really bring that into the workshop until like mid, mid three hours, you know, and, and then they all go, Wow. <laughs> you know? so, this like this um, whole conversation has had so many good nuggets of just like, oh, that makes sense. And I can't imagine like I wish every person that wanted to become a foster parent would go would go through one of your trainings. Me too. <laughs> but people but people can find you on their own, right? So where can they find your book? And do you have any other type of platform where people can, you know, hear about any of your workshops? Or on my website, you know, locate the locator on my website. It says contact me kind of thing on the Edge of Unthinkable website, which is uh, it's www.edgeofunthinkable.com. And there's a place in there that you can contact me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every large group of foster parents that I'm in, I always say there's going to be one child from this whole room that'll grow up and say, I want to write a positive story about my foster care experience. And I always leave them encouraged that, you know, you're, somebody in this room, there's going to be a child that's impacted so, so much from your care and commitment that they're going to want to write about it to share it with other kids coming down the same, same street as I did, you know, but because of the lessons that my, these beautiful people gave me, it was a whole lot easier than if I wouldn't have had them. I don't know where I'd be. I really don't even know if I'd be sitting here talking to you. Oh my gosh. I have had like chills on so many things that you've said. So thank you so much for being open and for all of the work that you've done and having your experience be such a, such a learning experience and value to other people that otherwise would never get that type of perspective. Okay. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I certainly um, you know, that story doesn't make any sense unless it helps it, even one person be a better foster parent. That's, you know, I mean, it, it, there, there had to be a reason. And 
I, I really believe that, you know, God put me down here and said, you're going to go through this and then you're going to go out and you're going to tell other people how they can survive it <laughs> or how they can Surv be better right, parents. Survive so. it and how they can make this somebody else's life be this one, because there's plenty of kids that go through and they just kind of age out and they didn't have those critical adults that sh showed them, you know, healthy relationships and the life skills that you got. So being able to give people that guidance is is huge and i think that you're right that this was absolutely a god thing and and you're incredible and you're really good at what you do it's probably all that sales personality in you but you know you you were made for this for sure well you have a great rest of your day and try and stay warm up there in ohio all right well thank you so very much and you try to stay cool down there i will all right talk to okay. you later stay safe thank you you too bye-bye mm -hmm.